Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Today we are beginning a major new class on how we get our English Bibles. I'm so excited about sharing with you so much about what I've learned and doing the research for this project. We're going to have a great time together. My goal here is to cover the transmission of manuscripts as well as the translation process so you understand where our Bibles come from. Now we're not going to get into inspiration and the original writing of Scripture, but more how that scripture, once it was finished and completed, how did that end up getting to us today in our English translations? Now, I was thinking of calling this class Where Bibles Come From, but when I searched for that phrase, the search engine in its infinite wisdom autocorrected it to Where Do Babies Come From?, which, needless to say, wasn't the target audience I had in mind for this material. I decided to call it How We Got the Bible, and I think this is going to be a really interesting tour together of what is lying beneath the surface of our English translations, and I think it'll help you develop a trained eye so you can be more discerning as you read through your Bible. I think this class will also help us to become more aware that the Bible is not a Western book. It's not an English book, and it's certainly not an American book for my fellow Americans. Sometimes people act as if Christianity is a made-in-America faith, and it most certainly is not. The Bible is a foreign book. It's from a foreign place, from a foreign time, written in a foreign language. And I fear that sometimes we lose that foreignness once we get so used to reading it in our English translations, and I think this class will really help to bring out the foreignness of the Bible, which I think is really cool to think about and really helpful to give us a healthy respect for this book and the teachings contained within it. Today marks part one of this class, How We Got the Bible, and our focus will be on manuscripts. In fact, we're going to be focusing on manuscripts for quite some time because it's really the first part of understanding what the Bible is. Today we're going to focus on the Masoretic Text, You'll learn about the Aleppo Codex, probably the most accurate Masoretic text on the planet. We'll cover the Leningrad Codex, which to this day dominates textual studies since it is the oldest complete Hebrew Bible. And most of our English translations are very, very close to the Leningrad Codex, for better or for worse. Uh, We'll look at a handful of other important manuscripts in an effort to begin understanding where our Bibles come from. Now, I realize this is an audio podcast, and I've tried to describe everything I can as best as I can so that you should be all right with audio only. But just so you know, there is a video version of this class as well online for free. If you prefer to look at that, you can do it at restitudio.org. Just find this episode. This may be especially of interest for this episode because I do show a number of pictures of these manuscripts that you might want to take a look at. Here now is episode 330, How We Got the Bible, part one, the Masoretic Text. Have you ever seen a Bible? Of course, everyone's seen a Bible, right? They're in movies, they're in our houses, they're in the church, they're in hotel rooms. But I bet the Bible that you've seen is an English Bible. And that's technically a translation of the Bible, not the actual Bible. 
As it turns out, the actual Bible for the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, and then in the New Testament was written in Greek. So unless you're seeing a Hebrew or a Greek Bible, then you're not actually seeing the real Bible. You're seeing a translation of the Bible. Now the Hebrew Bible in a printed form, or the Greek Bible in a printed form, these are actually reconstructions based on thousands of different manuscripts that have been discovered over the last couple of centuries, mostly. And so what we want to do in this class is really take a deep dive to look at these different manuscripts. Where do they come from? How do you compare them to each other? For example, the Damascus Codex, a beautiful Old Testament manuscript where the hand of the scribe is so meticulous that it's almost indistinguishable from a printed manuscript. Or Codex Vaticanus, a famous manuscript for the New Testament, where once again the scribe, in this case writing in Greek letters, capital Greek letters with almost no spaces in between them, was able to line things up just so perfectly by eye and by hand. In this deep dive, you're going to learn all about where these manuscripts come from and how we can compare them to each other. And you're even going to find two passages that aren't represented in the oldest manuscripts, yet that are still in many of our Bibles today. And then we'll get into the whole world of translation and how translators do their work, what philosophies they work from, and what are the main decisions that they make at the outset. And we're gonna spend all kinds of time on bias in translation, a really important subject where translators unknowingly will insert their own beliefs into scripture. And this is something that you need to be aware of when you go to pick your own Bible and consider different translations. So here are my four main objectives for this class. First of all, to find out where the Bible's manuscripts came from. Secondly, to learn about comparing manuscripts to arrive at the best texts. Third, to understand how the process of translation works. And fourth, to develop a trained eye to spot bias in translation. Now the first two of these focus on manuscripts and the second two focus on translation. In this first session of How We Got the Bible, I wanna drill down on the question, where do Bibles come from? Specifically looking at the Old Testament. And so the Bible, of course, has two parts, but our main focus for this and the, the next few lectures is going to be on the Old Testament. Jewish people do not use the term Old Testament, they just call it the Bible. To avoid ambiguity, a lot of times scholars will refer to it as the Hebrew Bible. And uh, Jews will also call it the Tanakh. As it turns out, the Christian Old Testament has 39 books in it, whereas the Jewish Bible has 24 books. But they have the same amount of content, the same material. The Jewish books, what they did was they took Samuel, and rather than having first and second Samuel, they just have Samuel. And the same thing with Kings and Chronicles. And then they combined Ezra and Nehemiah into one book. And then they have the 12 prophets, which Christians tend to refer to as the minor prophets, not because they're less important, but just because their length is shorter. And uh, in the Jewish ordering of the books, they have these all together as considered one book. So when it comes to the Old Testament, the way it's laid out in our Christian Bibles, it begins with history and then moves to poetry and then prophecy. The Tanakh organizes scripture in a different way. And this acronym Tanakh comes from three words, Torah, Nevi'im, and Ketuvim. Torah 
as you probably know, is the first five books of the Bible, also called the Pentateuch. Other than the Torah, we have the Nevi'im, which is Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the Twelve. This does not map to the Christian ordering of things. And then we have the Ketuvim, or the writings, is the collection of the rest of the books from what we understand to be the Old Testament. So this is their designation, the Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim. When we think about the Hebrew Bible itself, 23,213 verses in total, 22,944 of them are in Hebrew, and 269 are in Aramaic, making Aramaic about only 1.2% of the Old Testament. Now, since Biblical Hebrew and Aramaic share the same alphabet, whatever I have to say about the Aramaic parts of the Old Testament is going to be the same as what I would say about the Hebrew parts of the Old Testament, as far as preservation over the centuries. Where does our Hebrew text come from? That's really the first question to start with. Answer, manuscripts. Manuscripts come from the word manus, which means by hand, and scriptus, which means having been written. So a manuscript, by definition, is a handwritten document. Now in 1440, Johannes Gutenberg invented movable type, you know, the printing press. And this absolutely revolutionized books henceforth. Sort of like the ancient equivalent of the internet being invented, which once again revolutionized books, giving us digital books. Well, in 1440, the printing press brought about this incredible revolution. So that after 1440 and the, once you get out of the 1500s, people don't handwrite books very much. There are some notable exceptions, but generally speaking, they print books. And so when we talk about biblical manuscripts, whether we're referring to Hebrew or to Greek with reference to the New Testament, what we're talking about is writings that date to before uh, Gutenberg's printing press in the 1400s. Now, there is some specialized terminology I want to make you aware of just so that you can follow as we're going through. And the first of those terms is, of course, the word manuscript. We already discussed it, but you, a lot of times you see that abbreviated, and I'm going to be abbreviating it as well as either MS or MSS, MS being manuscript, MSS being manuscripts. The word autograph uh, doesn't just refer to your favorite baseball player uh, signing a baseball. Actually, autograph, when it comes to manuscripts, refers to the original written text. So, for example, the book of Ezekiel, presumably written by Ezekiel or if he employed a scribe, who knows. But that original text that was written, that is what we call the autograph. And then copies of it get made probably in his own lifetime, but then through the generations so that it survives till today. And then we talk about the extant manuscript. The extant manuscript is the manuscript that's currently existing, usually stored in a museum somewhere around the world. Then we have the scribe. The scribe is the person who copied the manuscript. And then last of all, as far as just and the technical terminology here, the word variant is a word or phrase that differs between manuscripts. So if you have two manuscripts and one of them has a, this particular spelling of the, uh, a town, for example, and then another one has a different spelling for that same town, we call that a variant between the two manuscripts. And we'll get into how scholars figure out which one of those was likely to be the original. We'll, we'll deal with that later. But for right now, 
this, this is just some helpful terminology for us to think about. So the first question is, why, why do we need to know about manuscripts? What's the big deal about scribes? Well, here's the bottom line. Bibles wear out. I have my own example of this right here. This is uh, an NASB that I got. You can see it's been duct taped, uh, very carefully duct taped, I might add. Well, not really. This was the Bible I used when I attended Bible college some uh, 15 years ago. And you can see that it's just, you know, it's just been through a lot, this, this particular Bible. So there are some pages. This is, oh man, it does kind of look like an ancient manuscript at this point, doesn't it? So this is Isaiah 60. I uh, just love that chapter. I guess I looked at it too much. And it, you can see that my, my binding itself has, has permanently affixed itself to that chapter. And uh, you, we have other parts that, you know, the book of Acts looks like it's ready to just skip town on me. And uh, this is what happens to Bibles when they get old. So the question is, well, what do you do with an old Bible? Well, some people just let it sit on the shelf. That's what I do. That's my solution. Let it, give it a special place of honor on the shelf. But then uh, other people, maybe they throw it out or they duct tape or they get a rebound. Uh, but look, in a world where books are rare and books are expensive, what do you do? You hire a scribe to copy it so that you will have a new Bible and it will last another generation into the future. So this was really a big part of the story of especially the Old Testament, but also the New Testament. Take the book of Ezra, for example. Who wrote the book of Ezra? So far as we know, Ezra did. In fact, Scripture tells us that Ezra himself was a scribe. And then you have other books like Jeremiah that tell us that actually it was somebody named Baruch that wrote the book of Jeremiah on his behalf, that Baruch was a scribe. And we actually have uh, some archaeological find that identifies uh, Baruch even to this day that was found. So some really interesting things to think about as far as who wrote the Bible and how we preserve it. But when the Bible wears out, some people might want it to throw it in the garbage or I don't know, some people burn. I was looking on the internet and they suggested that you could have a respectful burning ceremony for your Bible. I don't know anyone that does that. Uh, but the Jewish people, their custom was to put it in a Geniza, which was a temporary holding place, and then ultimately to bury their scriptures. And so because Jews were diligent to bury their scriptures over the years and make new copies, we don't have that many manuscripts of Old Testament Bibles, whereas in the New Testament, we do end up having a lot more copies of manuscripts. So let's talk about sources of the Old Testament, get a bit of a lay of the land here. First off, we have the, in the first grouping, the Masoretic texts. We're going to look at that in just a moment. Then we have the Samaritan Pentateuch, and then we have translations. These are our three main categories for thinking about sources of the Old Testament. How do we determine what the Old Testament is, how do we compare these different sources together. So let's dive into that first one, the Masoretic text. That's going to be our focus for today. The Masoretes were a group of Jewish scribes that were active between A.D. 500 and 1000. Jewish scribes centered in Tiberias. And I've been to Tiberias. It's a, it's a really cool place, actually. There's a lot of action downtown on the, the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, but this is an ancient city that goes all the way back to the time of Jesus and uh, before. And so at the time, 
in Tiberias, between 500 and 1,000, this community flourished of these highly skilled scribes. I mean, just really the top notch of any copiers of all time were these Masoretes. They added vocalizations, accents, cantillation marks, and other marginal notes, and we'll get into some of this. And they employed incredibly reliable standards for copying the text. So, so that Hebrew manuscripts copied by the Masoretes, we call Masoretic texts. I've got a little quote here for you to explain this in more detail. We read, The Masoretes added a system of specialized notes on the text, the Mazora, which is actually made up of three components. The Mazora Parva, small Mazora, refers to notes written in the side margins of the text. These notes refer to certain word use statistics for the Old Testament. The Mazora Magna, large Mazora, was traditionally recorded in the top and bottom margins of the text. And we're going to see pictures of this in just a second. These notes contain particular details. For example, if the Mazora Parva notes that a word occurred only three times in the Masoretic text with a particular spelling, the Mazora Magna will provide the references where those three instances can be found in the text. There's also a Mazora Finalis, final Mazora, found at the end of the biblical books or at the end of the sections of the Old Testament. The Mazora Finalis contains specialized information about the number of words in the book or section, the middle word of the book, the middle consonant, and so forth. Uh, this is from the book Old Testament Textual Criticism, which I have right here, highly recommended, great book if you're interested in learning more about the man manuscripts and uh, how we can understand them. So what, what did we just read? What we read here was that the Masoretic text, when we see the Masoretic text, what we find is not just Scripture, but what we find is all these little letters next to Scripture in the margins, and then uh, full words above and below, and then more extensive notes at the end of books and sections of the Bible. And these are all verifying techniques that the Masoretes used these mazora or traditions to uh, mark how many words, how many other places had the same word, if it was the only time that word was used in the whole Bible. I mean, these people were just masters at their trade of counting. They counted everything <laughs> that you could count. And uh, why did they do that? Why were the Masoretes so ridiculously particular and specific? It's because they believed that what they held in their hands was from God. They believed that it was this incredibly sacred, important, valuable work that came to them from God through these different prophets, these different writings that have happened over the centuries, and they saw their role as the ones to pass that on to the next generation. And even if they encountered a word, it's just unbelievable, but even if the Masoretes encountered a word that had an archaic spelling, they did not modernize it. The Masoretes were master preservers. Here is a table of various Masoretic texts that have been found over the years. A lot of these texts, look at the rightmost column there. You'll see I have labeled it available to the West. Most people would probably just put discovered there. But a lot of these weren't lost, or some of them weren't lost. And, you know, just because Western scholars, European or American or British scholars, uh, get their 
hands on it doesn't mean that before that it was lost. I mean, a community might have been using it all along. That certainly was the case for the Aleppo Codex, for example. Uh, so I just put available to the West as the name of that column. And then I have location, contents, origin, and then first of all, on the leftmost, the name of it. So taking a look at Codex Chirensis, manuscript that has a complete book of the prophets there. It comes to us from the year 896. And look, it wasn't even found until the year 1983. Can you believe that? You know, that's not that long ago. And then we look at the Petersburg Codex, and that was found in the, in the uh, 1800s. The London Codex, 1891. The Aleppo Codex became available to scholarships at Hebrew University in 1958. It was actually never lost before that. We'll talk about that in a minute. Then we have the uh, University of Michigan, 1922. Damascus, 1975. Leningrad probably the most important of all these, 1863, and then the University of Bologna, Torah Scroll, 2013 is when that text became available. Last of all, the Migraot Gedolot, uh, which is the text underneath the King James Version of the Bible, uh, was available starting in the 16th century. It's actually not even a manuscript. I wanted to include it just so that uh, those of you familiar with the King James would see where that uh, version got its text from. It's actually a printed Bible, and we'll look at that in uh, just a minute here. So let's take a look at a couple of these manuscripts and see some pictures of what we've been talking about, what these Masoretic markings look like, and what it is we're, we're dealing with, you know, what's lying just underneath the surface of our Bibles. All right, so this is a picture of Codex Chirensis. You can see it's from the website archive.org, which is really great. It means that anybody can have access to it. And we can see here, as I zoom in, that this is a text in three columns. We have the, the right, the middle, and the left, and Hebrew runs right to left. So it would go right down the right column all the way down, and then it would start on the top of the middle column and go all the way down, and then the left column last. And you can see these little markings in the center of the columns. Those aren't smudges or typos. Those are little Hebrew letters that are indicating features about the text. And then in some places you get more words. And then on the bottom you have these what appear to be full sentences and also on the top. So that's a, a nice little illustration of the Masoretic text. To show you another example, this one is Codex Babylonicus Petropolitanus also uh, just called the St. Petersburg Codex. And this is, uh, look at this beautiful text here. Isn't that just marvelous? How it, uh, how it looks and how clear it is after all these centuries. Uh, once again, this text comes to us from the year 916, okay? This more, a thousand years later, it was 1916. That was a long time ago. <laughs> so this is like 1100, 1104 years old, the Petersburg Codex, really wonderful representative. And then we have the London Codex. Let's take a look at that one. So this is the picture of the London Codex from the British Library. And you can see the, the pages are a little browned. And once again, you got those telltale markings all on the sides of the text. Also, I'll show you in a future picture once we get to some higher resolution pictures that uh, the Masoretes put all these markings around the letters as well, which tell you how to pronounce everything and also how to sing it. That's what cantillation is, is how to sing it in synagogue when you chant the text. And then we have the Aleppo Codex, one of the most important, if not the most important Masoretic text in all 
history that's ever been found. It's also called the Crown of Aleppo, or the Keter Aram Sofa, the Crown of Aram Sofa, which is the name of the town Aleppo in Syria. And this is an, a magnificent text. You can see my magnifying glass here. This is a page from the book of Deuteronomy, and we can see a little clearer these notes on the top of the page. As I drop down to the text itself, we can see uh, these dots and lines above and below the Hebrew letters. These are the Masoretic vocalizations or vowels that they've inserted, as well as some of these other markings, like on the left side, there's a, what appears to be a large comma. That is not a vowel, that's uh, just a, a, a cantillation mark or an accent or some of these other markings that are helpful for grammar and that sort of thing. But really an incredible work of art, the Aleppo Codex. That's why it was called the Crown, the Crown of Aram Sova. It was written in the 10th century in Tiberias, the town of the Masoretes. It's a Ben Asher text, which is a grouping of texts that uh, follow this one family of scribes. It was purchased by the Karite Jews in Jerusalem, and uh, sadly, in the year 1099, due to the Crusades, it was uh, captured in Jerusalem. I mean, just think about that for a moment. This, this book, uh, which we have access to today, digitally online on this website, aleppocodex.org, which anybody in the world can go to and look at, this book of the Bible, this collection of the Old Testament books of the Bible, the Hebrew Bible, is so old that it was actually captured during the Crusades. And then the Crusaders sold it. They held this manuscript of the Bible ransom and sold it to Jews in Egypt. So it started in Tiberias, it moved down to Jerusalem, so that was in the 900s, and then in the thousands it was in Jerusalem, and then in the 1100s it ends up in Egypt and stayed in Cairo for a while. And one of the super famous Jewish rabbis and thinkers and authors of all time, a man named Maimonides, ended up actually using the Aleppo Codex for some of his studying. And he referred to it as being a trustworthy and accurate text. Uh, later on, this text was then brought to Aleppo, Syria, uh, where it stayed for about six centuries until 19... 47, when the state of Israel, when Palestine got partitioned into the state of Israel and the West Bank by the United Nations. And so rioters attacked the Jewish community in other Arab-speaking areas surrounding modern-day Israel. And the synagogue in Aleppo was actually burned. And then about 10 years later, in the year 1958, it showed up again, this time in Jerusalem, and it ended up being acquired by the president, Yitzhak ben Zvi, uh, the president of Israel, and he entrusted it to the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, uh, but he limited access. There's a big controversy over how he obtained the, the manuscript, and there was actually a trial that went on. And if you're curious about these things, you should definitely read the book called The Aleppo Codex by Matty Friedman. It's an excellent expose, piece of investigative journalism, tracing this little uh, story over the, the decades, well, centuries, really, uh, but more focusing on the modern controversies of it. But anyhow, in the late 1980s, this um, codex, codex is just another name for a book, uh, whereas a scroll is rolled up, a codex is what we call a book today, 
where you have leaves sewn together, ended up in the shrine of the book in Jerusalem. And that's where I was able to first encounter this incredible ancient book, was in a place called the Shrine of the Book. This is a picture that I took of the top of the Shrine of the Book, which is a museum. You can see it's got a very unusual shape. It's got these water sprinklers going on it. There's a picture of the sun as you enter into the Shrine of the Book. And uh, at the bottom level of it, the second level of it, you can find this exhibit of the Codex Aleppo, uh, just absolutely gorgeous penmanship here and really, really cool to see it up close and in person. Here's another shot of it even closer up and uh, this is actually the text taken from Habakkuk chapter 3, uh, right on the top right, right of the page there that says al Shiganot which is, uh, which is the very end of verse 1. And then a little later on, we read the following words. This is actually one of my favorite passages in the whole Old Testament. It's from Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. You can see I marked it here on the picture I took of the manuscript. For though the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines. The labor of the olive trees, the olive shall fail, and the fields shall yield no food. The flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will exult in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength, and he maketh my feet like hind's feet. He maketh me to walk upon my high places. You know, this is, this is 1,100 years ago I'm looking at, and it's the same Bible as what we have today. Going back to our list of manuscripts here, we don't have time to look at all of them, but these, these are all worthy of your attention. If you want to do internet searches for them, you'll be able to find pictures of them and see really how cool they are. I'm gonna skip ahead to the Leningrad Codex, which is the oldest complete manuscript of the Hebrew Bible. Here's a picture of the Leningrad Codex, uh, whereas all these other manuscripts and codices have partial Bibles. Leningrad has the whole Bible, so it forms itself as the basis of editing other ones and seeing which ones are, how they all line up, because it has all the verses. This is the, one of the most famous scriptures in the whole Bible that says Shema. If, you're, uh, if you've read that before, Deuteronomy 6.4, uh, which, which says, Shema Yisrael, Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Echad. Uh, that's what it says right here in the first two lines. Then ve'ahavta et Yahweh Elohecha, and you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Uh, so this is just an incredible, cool thing to see here. It's now stored at the National Library in Russia since the year 1863, St. Petersburg. Uh, and then it was renamed to Leningrad, then renamed back to St. Petersburg because of different regimes that took over in Russia and the USSR. Uh, but the time when this manuscript really became popular and started being used as the basis for the, uh, the standard biblical Hebrew text that we have even to this day, uh, it was called the Leningrad Codex, so that name stuck. And it remains to this day the Leningrad Codex, and it is stored in Russia. It's copied from Aaron ben Moses ben Asher. Uh, so it's a text very much in line with what we saw with the Aleppo text in that same uh, stream of transmission. Acquired by Avraham Frikovich in 1838 and brought to Ukraine 
And uh, nobody's really sure where Abraham got it from, but when he died, these texts ended up with the National Museum, National Library in Russia. So that's where they are to this day. Let's take a look at one more of these manuscripts here. The last one on the page there is the Mikraot Gedalot, which is just a Hebrew phrase that means great scriptures. Uh, and like I said to you before, this is kind of an exception. This is not actually a manuscript. This is a printed Bible. And it's also known as the Rabbinic Bible. In other words, it's like the standard text that the rabbis would use to teach the Bible in synagogue. And it's printed, uh, or at least to study on their own, it's, pr it's a printed Masoretic text from the year 1516. Uh, so here's a picture of the Mikraot Gedalot, the great scriptures. Uh, this is a really cool passage from the book of Numbers. Chapter 1, verse 1, you can see this is more than just an Old Testament. It's got all kinds of commentary all around it here. And yet it is within the Masoretic tradition of having all of these uh, small markings around the text. And uh, we can see that the text actually says, The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting on the first day of the second month. And that the first word of that phrase comes up here in the big huge letters right there, which says, and that would be, and he spoke, and then you have the word Lord uh, right in the middle of the page here. I'll move it up a little bit so you can see it. Those of you who recognize the name of God there, uh, to Moshe in the wilderness of Sinai. So the Leningrad text is, is our gold standard because it's a complete uh, version of the Hebrew Bible, right? And so that's from about the year 1000. Then Five centuries later, you have this printed text, and uh, it becomes sort of dominant for a while until Leningrad is eventually discovered, and Aleppo comes to light. Only in 1958 does it start being studied, and only in Hebrew University, and only specialists are able to see it. It's not brought into the shrine of the book until the 80s. Things aren't digitized until very recently. So a lot of this wasn't really available for a long time. Um, so. The King James, for example, we're going to talk all about the King James later, but the King James, they used the best that they had, but it just wasn't as old as other stuff that was on the planet at the time because it just wasn't available yet. And uh, so they did use this Mikraot uh, Gedalot, and then they corrected it based on the Septuagint and the Vulgate, two ancient translations we're going to be looking at later in this class. But that's enough for today. That's uh, a tour of nine Masoretic texts for the Old Testament. I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, each one of these has whole stories attached to them. Some of them we know more about, others we don't because there are a lot of uh, backdoor deals made on the antiquities black market <laughs> over the years and some of the museums have not always been honest either. Uh, but we have what we have and these are the nine major Masoretic texts to look at. And next time we're going to look at the earliest Hebrew manuscripts including the Dead Sea Scrolls and see how this groundbreaking discovery changed the world of Hebrew Bible scholarship and everything. So we'll see you next time. Well, this concludes our first episode of this class. Stay tuned next time as we'll get into the earlier Hebrew manuscripts that have been found, especially the Cairo Geniza and the Dead Sea Scrolls. So stay tuned for that. I'm hoping to get on a new schedule for podcasting so that I'll have two episodes out a week. I'm thinking Tuesday, Saturday. I realize today is Thursday, so uh, I, I, I have an area 
to improve here. But uh, the next one will hopefully, Lord willing, be out Saturday, and then we can stick to that Tuesday-Saturday schedule. My, my goal here is just that you would be able to go at your own pace. Some of you are going to want to listen to this sped up. Some of you are going to want to go online and watch the videos. Others of you maybe will have to listen to it a couple of times because I do move at a quick pace here. Uh, but whatever it is, whatever your learning style is, I hope that uh, you will gain an appreciation for the scriptures as we cruise through the different issues related to how we got our Bibles and how we are getting our Bibles, because new translations are underway. I uh, just uh, the other day noticed that one of my New Testament professors is on the team that is translating the update to the New Revised Standard Version, uh, so there's there's a update coming for that. I know that a number of other translations have been updated and are continually being updated, and there are others that are in the works. So this is very much a live issue. Uh, I think we'll see, too, as more Hebrew resources and a a, um, better understanding of the textual history comes to light more and more, especially with some of the stuff we're going to talk about next time, we're going to see you know, a significant update to our Old Testament translations in the next few years once that work becomes available widely. Also, I wanted to let you know that if you have any comments on this episode or questions, uh, this class is developing week by week, and uh, I might be able to incorporate some of your suggestions or questions into future episodes. I'm hoping to be able to do that. So if you want to write in, you just go to restitutio.org and find episode 330, uh, Bible Part 1, the Masoretic Text, and you can leave a comment there, and that, that way I'll be sure to see it. Also, while you're there, you can take a look at the show notes for this episode, in which I include the two books I mentioned, the Old Testament Textual Criticism by Bratzman and Tully. Really, really helpful resource. I depended on it heavily. Uh, for a few of these lectures. And then the Aleppo Codex by Matty Friedman, a really delightful read. Uh, it reads basically like a fiction book, but it's a nonfiction book. It's the investigative quest of a journalist to discover what in the world happened to the Aleppo Codex. Uh, probably many of you who have studied the subject think that uh, part, part of the Codex was burned in a fire in 1947. Uh, that is false, that is definitively false. Uh, the markings on the codex are from a fungus, not from a fire. And uh, it's very likely, according to Friedman, that the missing portions are still around somewhere and that somebody has them and that uh, we could all benefit a great deal if we could get photographs of those or if they could be reunited uh, with the rest of the text in Jerusalem. So, Uh, Really fascinating stuff there. Take a look at that. That's also available on Audible, which uh, is a really good way to get through material like this. Well, that's it for today. If you'd like to support Restitutio, you can donate at restitutio.org. We'll see you next time. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.